Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. Yeah, fast forward six months later, uh, I get another, you know, nod on the little pat on the shoulder. I wake up and, hey, uh, pack your stuff. You're going back to Sacramento. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Well, the owner, uh, there's actually an article about this on the imprint, Daniel Heipel, uh, Fostering Media Connections. He had a writer, writer did a story and the lady sold the house for 600K. <laughs> Uh, this was what, when like 2014, 15, which is like crap, right? Horrible sale price. I think now it's like a million too. Uh, and didn't tell anybody, didn't call anybody social workers, didn't tell any of the kids. And basically just told them the day of like, hey, sorry, you guys got to go. So I called this girl I was seeing at the time. I'd only seen her for two weeks. I said, hey, you know, I got to leave. Can't really explain it, but I'd love to see you before I go. She had just gotten out of her SAT, right? And, uh, you know, sure enough, her mom calls back five minutes later and says, hey, you can, you can come stay with us. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way ACASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Jeremiah McWright. Jeremiah is a former foster youth from Sacramento, California. His mom suffered from mental illness and his parents' relationship was fractious and then violent. At 15, he and his four younger siblings were removed from their home and put into the foster care business, as he calls it. Here's his story. Hey, I'm here with Jeremiah McWright. Hi, Jeremiah. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. So, tell me. Who are you? Where are you from? How were you raised? So I was born and raised in Sacramento. Uh, at the age of 15, I got into the foster care system, which brought me around 14 different placements in two years. Uh, exhausted all the group homes in Sac County, and they shipped me out to the Bay, San Francisco. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, okay, hang on. So what happened when you were a little kid? Like, what was that situation like? You've got a bunch of brothers and sisters, right? Yeah, four of them. Uh, three sisters and one brother. Uh, they're great. I kind of was like another parent to them, and uh, it was good. You know, Sacramento's like a farm town, and a lot of outdoorsy, a lot of rivers, and stuff like that. Right, but your mom wasn't all together, right? Yeah. Uh, basically, in 2008, she started showing symptoms of mental illness, and eventually... You know, fast forward to 2012, that uh, really kind of blossomed, if you will. Mm -hmm. So are we talking about schizophrenia, depression, uh, what? Couldn't really say. You know, I'm not a doctor. Sure, there were some, you know, diagnoses uh, mm -hmm. that were made, but 
you know, I've got kind of conflicting stories, you know, and memories in my head. So I, I think it is, uh, I think the official thing was like manic depression or something like that, or manic bipolar. I don't really remember. Um, but yeah. Right. And how about, how about your father? Was he not in the picture at all? No, no. He was very much in the picture. I was in Boy Scouts. He was my troop leader, my pack leader, excuse me. Uh, had his own business, pool guy. Now he's uh, like a lumberjack, chops down trees and stuff like that. So um, yeah, so he's very motivated, very entrepreneurial and was kind of like the rock of the family. So that's a little bit like you, actually. Um, so you've obviously inherited quite a few of his qualities. Hopefully. So why did you end up in foster care? Why didn't you end up with your dad? Why did you get re- how did you get removed? Yeah. So good question. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, there's multiple angles you can talk about this problem from. But uh, I believe, especially here in California, uh, there's the state is set up in a way where destroying families is very it's very lucrative business. And um, it's unfortunate, but it's almost like legal child trafficking. If you really think about it. And so, you know, when I was in the sixth grade one time, I it's funny, I, I, I would like sneak fruit snacks and stuff from, you know, my siblings. And I was like 12, 13 at the time. So I was too old to be just eating fruit snacks all day. Right. And what I would do is I'd throw the, the wrappers behind the fridge. So, you know, my parents wouldn't find it. And, you know, one day my dad's deep cleaning the kitchen and he pulls the fridge back. It's just like a, you know, garden of wrappers right hostess <laughs> wrappers fruit snack wrappers and he just go you know he goes crazy he's pissed he ends up getting you know this was the last last whooping i ever got and trust me i should have got probably 10 times more than i got right it wasn't like i was getting beat up every day or anything like that right uh you know and he he grabbed uh some old direct tv cables and he he caught me twice with them and uh it ended up yeah, yeah, it was it was not a good feeling. I definitely stopped uh, sneaking the fruit snacks after that. But like I said, he probably should have, you know, taken care of me a few more times than that. So I, I'm not complaining or anything. But it did end up leaving a bruise somewhere on the back of my neck or something like that. So I went to school the next day and I saw this kid who actually went to one of my birthday parties. Funny, you know, I knew this kid for a few years. I think he was in Boy Scouts, but in like another pack and. He's like, dude, what happened? Oh, oh, nothing, nothing. And he knew. And sure enough, he goes back home and tells his mom, <laughs> uh, you know, a few weeks later, knock, knock, CPS, right? Wow. And so this is the way that, you know, the system has been set up to where, and of course, you know, God forbid another situation where a kid really is getting, you know, beat up every day, then yeah, you would want, you know, the state to step in. And I'm not saying every decision is wrongfully made. However, a lot of the time it is. And I think this is one of those times. And so there was about a six month period after this where, you know, they'd have check ins and they had some program. And I remember my dad. It's funny. My dad, he actually grew up in the foster care system in Los Angeles. Really? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Since he was a baby. So he had it, you know, and those were the 80s. So, you know, there's a lot less funding, a lot less, you know, uh, checks and balances, if you will, for for foster care. So he would tell me these horror stories, Jeremiah, you know, if you if you tell them stuff, you know, they're going to try and twist it and you don't want to go to group homes, you know, they're going to put a broom up your butt, all this crazy stuff, right? Like it was just like was trying to traumatize me from um, potentially, you know, giving some information out that they could use. And so this was the very first, uh, this was probably around 2006, 
2000, yeah, around there-ish, that foster care got involved. So, or CPS, excuse me. Right. So then, so that's the reason why you didn't end up with your that dad. Is, no, that's, that's just kind of the first point where, you uh, know, they got involved. Yeah. Um, first flag that, right. Okay. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. And so, you know, this, my mother, I should back up a little bit, very intelligent woman, right? Very intelligent. She has her master's degree in uh, theology from UC Davis and Fuller Seminary. So she, you know, she spoke ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek. And, you know, I used to help her with her flashcards. I was homeschooled for like a year and a half-ish. Um, and she was a painter, right? Charcoal, oil, watercolor, very, very talented. Uh, you know, would paint pictures of me when I was a baby. I mean, very, very smart, very creative. Um, but, you know, creative people, they, <laughs> if, they, if they can't handle that, those energies, then, you know, unfortunately, some stuff can happen. And, you know, that, that seemed to be the case for her. I think getting the master's online, raising five kids, I think it all kind of came together. And also, of course, you know, there's the biological factor um, from her parents. And so, you know, fast forward to 2008, it's my dad's birthday, right? July, you know, middle of July, right? Uh, now, remember, I got the three sisters. And so my older sister, uh, we'll call her M, uh, was like five feet at the time, right? She's like eight years old. And the sister below her was just about three, four years younger. Uh, and so, you know, she's a toddler, right? Now, my mother, she got mad at my dad. They were arguing. She took off. She's going to go grocery shopping. And she tried putting the older sister and the younger sister's car seat. So it's like, hey, what's going on? Well, my mom had been, you know, sipping some wine this day. And so my dad was like, hey, you know, your mom's not doing so hot. And I'm like, a, you know, young teen. So I don't, I don't understand mental stuff. And I don't know how alcohol works. And I didn't know, right? Very sheltered. I didn't, you know, know what drugs were until I was like, you know, junior, senior in high school, right? Like very, very sheltered. And, uh, you know, so he, my dad tells me, hey, something's not right with your, with your mom, right? Like, I don't know, but just, you know, kind of be wary. And sure enough, she tries to put my sister in, in the younger sister's car seat. And so my dad comes out and he, and he tries to grab my sister. He's like, no, you know, let's stop this. She needs to stay here. Let's stay here. We can figure this out. And my mother, she actually grabbed my older, younger oldest sister and ran out into the street with her and then just like fell over. Like I cracked her like head open actually, and my mom broke her wrist, and she cracked my little sister's head open by falling on top of her. It was really like cinematic because my sister she had this like white dress on for my dad's birthday. You know she's you know just feeling herself, and there was like blood on the dress, and it was just a whole mess. You know, police come, and that was actually the first time that she went into a mental institution. And uh, you know I remember that being some of the most peaceful times. So. Again, still throughout this point, my dad stayed in the picture. My dad was taking care of us, uh, you know, and after she got out, after I think it was maybe a few, three, four days, there was a shift, right? There was a shift in the family dynamic. There was a shift in my parents' relationship and also, you know, me and my siblings' relationship to my mother, right? Something was different. And, you know, every six months, year and a half, there would be another thing that happened, another episode. She'd do something, you know, crazy. Uh, I mean, it even got to the point where she would blame, she would try and set up my father and get the cops to arrest him. She would try and use racial things. My father's a black man. He's half black, half white. She would try and use racial things. She would say that, I mean, just really, I mean, I don't, I don't know if 
really bad things. Like she would tr- lie and say that like he would sodomize her and they would send a female cop out and there'd be nothing wrong with my mother. And they would actually, the cops would take my mom away when she would call them on my dad. And so, you know, what started out as mental illness became this power struggle between the two of them over, you know, influence over the kids and obviously decision making. So, uh, you know, fast forward to 2012, November. Uh, well, the summer of 2012, I remember I, right before the summer, I skated home. This was my what freshman uh, year of high school. I skate home and I always go through the garage because I can't bring the skateboard to the front door. It's too dirty. So I go through the garage. My mom is, you know, she's changing laundry out of the washer into the dryer. And she's like very like in this weird kind of state, kind of transient state. And I remember I, I remember this like a movie. Right. And, uh, you know, I turned to her and I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on? And she's like, we did it, Maya. My, they call me Maya. She's like, we did it. I'm like, what do we do? She's like, we got rid of your dad. Just like that. And I remember thinking to myself, like, damn, I'm going to go now. You know what I mean? Like, it's not funny, but I remember there being this like mental shift. And, you know, I called my dad and I'm like, hey, you know, WTF, what's going on here? And he told me, you know, they got into an argument. Basically, she was trying to get him to hit her so, you know, the cops can take him away for domestic, right? She got in his face. They were arguing about whatever. She got in his face. She licked his forehead and then poured, you know, Coca-Cola soda on his on his expensive laptop. It's like $800 laptop he had. And she was trying to get him to hit her. And he would not hit her. He got up. He left. He moved out. He ended up moving in with his brother-in-law. Uh, eventually became homeless. He was homeless for a couple of years and now he's back on his feet and doing really well, has his own place, new girlfriend. They've been together for years. Um, when he left that day, my mom started the process of a restraining order. This was April of 2012 before summer. That whole summer she had us getting on the train, all five of us, me and my siblings going to the courthouse, right? Back and forth, courthouse, home. Uh, eventually she got it and, uh, you know, she shipped me down to San Diego one time on, on a Greyhound. I mean, she was like, she basically saw my father in me. And so the hate and disdain she had for my father when he left was totally centered on myself. Right. right she transferred it to you. Right. hundred mm-hmm. percent. And my, this included, you know, telling my siblings that all of our, you know, family issues were my fault. And I mean, just like really sick stuff. And I probably don't even know the half of it. Right. Um, and so, you know, she sends me down to San Diego for two weeks. I come back. She's gone. She's moved out of our house. My sister's clothes are gone. The kitties are gone. I call my dad. I'm like, hey, there's nobody here. <laughs> Where the hell did mom go? And he's like, I have no clue. You know, he comes out, he gets a ride. And she had moved into a little two bedroom apartment down the street from our home without, you know, telling anybody. So I went in there. She starts drinking. She starts dating. Fast forward to November. She's really under the influence one night. She yelled, playing music loud, yelling at the neighbors. Eight calls were made to SAC PD. Uh, they came out. She's speaking ancient Hebrew to them. I remember she, when the cops were getting called and neighbors were telling us, she, she put on the Crocodile Rock episode of Elton John and the Muppets for my siblings to get them to all chill out and look good for the cops, right? Give them all otter pops. It was hilarious. Um, you know, they come in, they, they did end up having to restrain her. Um, you know, they were asking for my dad to come. I called him, he was on his way. And then my mom mentions the restraining order. Cop turns to me, he says, is this true? You know, 
siblings are all over the place. I'm thinking to myself, and I remember having just this like God moment of like, this is going to change. This is a huge, you know, fork in the road of, Hey, whatever I answer is going to completely, you know, and I, I told him, yeah, she does. And I got the papers and I showed them to him and they called my dad and said, Hey, you got to turn around. We're taking him into foster care. And then 12 AM that night, we went in to a mass group home in Sacramento. Three months later, they got their first placement and then that was pretty much that. Right. And you were only together for three months, three months. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you were separated from your... So they got a placement before I did, which is just very common. You know, people have their heartstrings are more pulled with with the younger kids. Mm -hmm. And they got adopted too, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they actually had a very unique, uh, very grateful experience. They were, uh, I believe, two placements. The second placement ended up following through with adoption for all four of them. Um, so this was a very rare situation. First placement was kind of not so hot, but uh, second family, Asian family, Christian, has their stuff together, pretty well off. Um, so they definitely lucked out. Okay, but you also said that one of those sisters, you feel that she's, yeah. that basically she's in trouble. Tell me about them. Well, you know, it's unfortunate. She uh, believes herself to be bisexual. And, you know, it's my opinion that this is more of a social phenomenon and a social trend that's really been encouraged. I won't say how I truly feel, but, you know, by the media, by social media. And it's trendy, right? It's trendy to be gay these days. And, uh, you know, when that's all someone's personality is, is I'm so gay and here I am. It's kind of like, okay, great. Like, what else do you got going on? <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you do anything? Uh, you know, or, you know, there's, it's not just with gay. It's with anything. If one thing is your whole identity, it's like, hey, you know, what? you're boring, right? And so, or it's just annoying, right? And so, unfortunately, you know, she said she was bi growing up. And obviously, in foster care, it's a very common thing. You know, confusion and... Um, yeah, eventually the adoptive family, them having a very kind of classic, I don't want to say oriental, but, you know, Asian culture just didn't play that. And they, they kicked her out, you know, six months ago and I, or a few months ago, and I called the adoption dad. I said, Hey, you know, what happened here? And he gave me a very calm, stern, direct, Hey, here's what happened. We were, we tried communicating, gave her many opportunities. Yeah. And they just couldn't, couldn't get through it. So they, they did kick her out and now she's living with her girlfriend in Kansas and going to school for theater. She's actually a musical theater. She's very good, but uh, it's interesting to kind of watch, you know, psychologically what happens over the years and, and the differences and changes, but she's, she's going to be fine. She, she's very smart. Um, right. So then you were separated with your, your siblings and what happened to you and Kara? I know you said you had yeah. 14, 14 placements in two mm-hmm. years. So yes. tell me about that. What the hell happened? <laughs> Well, I just, uh, I don't like being bossed around. Um, you know, it's always been very stubborn as a kid with my own parents and having to play both sides like most kids do. Uh, and, you know, as I got into the world, I the summer before we got into care, actually, I started mowing lawns and I borrowed a lawnmower from my neighbor and I made like a thousand bucks mowing lawns for like five bucks a pop. It was crazy in Sacramento. So I was just always very independent, very not like a business maverick or anything like that. You know, I'm not some millionaire, but, you know, very outgoing. And so when, uh, you know, prior to getting into foster care, I started taking digital photography. I was extremely talented at it. I started winning awards. I became president of the yearbook at my school. 
and I created a business out of it where I would shoot football games, basketball games, all the sports and sell packages to the parents, right? <laughs> so I, I would even borrow the cameras from my school on the south side of the tracks and go shoot the games on the north side of the tracks. And, you know, people wouldn't be happier with that, of course. Uh, so just was always very, you know, entrepreneurial minded. And when I got into foster care, I already had clients and, you know, I wasn't making all kinds of money, but I had already shot a couple weddings and, um, you know, I was just, past the point of needing to be completely supervised. And so uh, while trying to shop me around for, you know, foster homes in the beginning, and my very first home was actually a Filipino family. Uh, the guy kicked me out and then died of cancer like a year later. So I, I don't know if that was correlated, but hopefully not. Uh, you know, it just, I couldn't, they would want to be so structured. Right. They, you have to be, they think that, and if for your class audience that's listening, you know, you have to tell the parents and, and as many people you can, like, you can't try and like militarily, you know, grow a kid. You, the best thing you can do is listen, right? The best thing you can do is just shut up, listen, don't encourage the victimization. Don't encourage, oh, everything's so bad. I had it so bad. Life sucks. But just listen and say, okay, we'll do this, right? Or try this, or that's the main thing. But to get back to what I was saying, you know, these foster homes and group homes, the way they're structured, not only regulatorily, but personally, um, is just hard for independent kids, right? And that was me. Right. And, and also because in many ways you were parentified. You were taking care of yeah. your younger brothers and sisters. You yeah. were making your, a lot of your own decisions. You were on your own a lot. Yeah. Uh, you were probably taking care of your mom probably a lot, right? <laughs> it was like a babysitter sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden you get into a home where they say, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to, this is yep. the way it works here, that's it. Yep. And yep. you were like, I'm not having that. Right, right. And, you know, I'm not saying I was some perfect, you know, choir boy. I mean, I was hard to deal with. I still am in some aspects, but... Uh, you know, I just, I knew what I wanted and I, I wouldn't let, you know, the bureaucracy of the system uh, slow that down. Right. And you also have said very clearly, you call it the, the foster care business because yes. it's a business. It's a lucrative Absolutely. business for a lot of people. There's a lot of people yes. making a lot of money, right? Lots of money. I, yeah, it's insane. So, but you're also like, you're not that woe is me kind of guy. You're a guy that likes solutions. So, well, yeah, I've, here's the thing, you know, there in California, there's many nonprofits that work on and, and change the lives of the system for better. Absolutely. I'd say most of their work, 99% of it is absolutely awesome, whether that's getting more money, getting more grants, uh, you know, opening more beds, right? Whatever it is you're doing, that's totally, I, I 2000% applaud that. What I disagree with are the more mental frames and, uh, I mean, let's just call it what it is, politi political act, you know, activism that uh, you know, these non-for-profits teach. And I'll give you a great story. One of them, California Youth Connection. Been around, I believe, 30 years, something like that. Many executive directors. When I moved to San Francisco, uh, when I was 17, I got involved and I got very active and I went to the conferences. I'd be a facilitator, I'd be a speaker, whatever, right? 
Uh, I even started doing social media consulting with them. And they took me and built me in many, many ways. Leadership, facilitation skills, verbal speaking, uh, you know, running a conversation, many, many things that I saw and I just loved about it. Now, the vehicle that they taught these things through was legislation and policy and extremely left-leaning, extremely liberal, extreme, like super progressive. And this isn't a political podcast, so we're not going to get into that, but it's just the reality of the situation. Headquartered in Oakland. I mean, it's just what it is, right? Right. You can speak your mind. This is what it's okay. for. So please. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. absolutely. Yeah. So there's, there's two sides to every story, right? And, and I can look at it both sides. I mean, they've got a beautiful machine running and it's very successful and they're plugged in with important people at the Capitol, even though it's probably more a photo op for those people like Karen Bass and others. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And so as I grew in this organization in influence and scope, I started to disagree and see things in different ways. And it got to a point where I actually moved to San Diego for some for school. I, I transferred to San Diego State and I, I was getting involved down there. Uh, and, you know, I just found myself being changed personally. I got into martial arts. I was studying Kung Fu. I started teaching kids classes. And I remember one day I was reading Obama's book to his father or something about his father. Uh, Dreams of my father, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well written, but I mean, uh, to not go totally off the deep end, uh, you know, Obama is pretty much a a groomed, you know, thing. Hell of a lot better than Biden, in my opinion. He could could speak a complete sentence, right, at least. But I mean, the fake birth certificate, the whole thing, right? Let's not get into it. And so my, my master, we're in between classes and he looks at me and he's like, hey, McCright, you really believe what you're reading in that book uh, or something to that effect? And I got all offended. I, remember, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, of course, actually, this is the president, you know? And uh, and he, I remember him just like shaking his head and kind of looking down and, uh, you know, just a really wise guy. I've also learned a ton from him. Uh, and I remember that day, you know, I, I really just started questioning and, and thinking for myself and I started looking back and I noticed, hey, I, I start to not agree with the crowd and I start to say what I really feel. And all of a sudden, these people I thought were my people are, you know, I'm like put up on the cross, literally. I mean, <laughs> Let's not get too deep into it, right? But, you know, I, I essentially came out for Trump and against BLM and, and uh, you know, and feel free to edit this if you'd like. I don't care if No, you no, this is yours. Uh, this is yours. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came out for Trump and I don't just, I don't agree with everything he says and against BLM. And I, I remember I made one post that just went nuclear. I said, BLM is worse than the KKK, which statistically is true. I mean, uh, but you remember the riots and all of this. And yep. uh, FBI is not knocking down those people's doors for some reason, but they're knocking down grandma's door and putting her in solitary confinement. Right. Mm-hmm. So nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I was making these posts and I'll be honest, these posts were provocations and they were attention seekers, but it's fun and it's funny to mess with people. I had like 3000 people on my Facebook and these are all hardcore liberal San Francisco, Oakland, Sacramento hitters, right? You know, mayor of Sacramento, right? I had a very unique network up there. I was like a poster boy, foster kid, right? Photographer. And all of my network, I'd probably say 80% of them completely wrote me off tried calling my jobs, calling me a rapist, sexist, homophobic, 
I mean, like really sick things. One girl I even did a presentation with for CYC. She's now a lawyer. And she said she was going to do this whole smear campaign to hold me responsible for, you know, and just all this stuff. And it just was really, uh, you know, a great learning lesson of, you know, who's true and who's not and, and who your real people are and who's not. And look, I mean, I can, you know, I can have a friend or at least know somebody who, believes the complete opposite of me and you know maybe I won't take them out for a, a beer but I'm not gonna like call their job and say they're like a rapist I mean these right are and just... try to ruin them right right yeah or online so this this was very common all right let, let me let me go back though I want to ask you about so you're you're a young man you ended up in a group home in the ghetto Yes, San Francisco. And what happened? You were like, I'm... Yeah, so I remember the day uh, I was at a group home in West Sacramento. They woke me up. It was a Saturday morning. I woke up after passing out watching Breaking Bad all night, right? Love that show. You were binging on Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. Got me through the group home days, that whole show, right? And they they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Jeremiah, pack your stuff. I'm like, why? You're moving to San Francisco. So they, you know, basically the group homeowner I was at made a call to, you know, another group homeowner he knew, thought I would do better out there. They send me out. I show up. One kid is like a Sereno, one kid is homeless, and one kid doesn't speak English from El Salvador. Right. And so this really, you know, unique mix of, of folks. And it was a privately owned uh, group home that had their license for 30 years. And so they were level 12, but they didn't play by any rules. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> the first day I showed up, uh, you know, I was so excited. I mean, this was like a wet dream, right? I mean, I've been shooting all this boring stuff in Sacramento, you know, just boring landscape <laughs> photos, right? And then I move here and it's just like this canvas of beauty. I mean, I'm sure you saw a lot of beauty with the Saudis, right? You can imagine. But, uh, you know, San Francisco just blew my mind, right? The first night I told the, the group home worker, I said, you know, I need to, I'm having an anxiety attack, right? I need to go on a, on a mental health walk. And I came back like four hours later, you know, after going all around the whole city. And it was a great shift, uh, you know, started getting politically involved. But yeah, it was a group home in Hunter's Point, which if you're familiar with San Francisco, is kind of the one of the few, you know, black neighborhoods and just a really rough area um, that's really underdeveloped. So uh, definitely was dangerous, um, but I was so excited. I, I loved it. Right, but you thrived in that. But then, absolutely, that didn't last. What happened? Yeah, fast forward six months later, uh, I get another, you know, nod on the little pat on the shoulder. I wake up and hey, uh, pack your stuff. You're going back to Sacramento. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Well, the owner, uh, there's actually an article about this on the imprint, Daniel Heipel with uh, Fostering Media Connections. Yes, he had a I writer, know. Mm-hmm. writer did a story and the lady sold the house for 600K. <laughs> for, uh, this was what, when like 2014, 15, which is like crap, right? Horrible sell price. I think now it's like a million too. Uh, and didn't tell anybody, didn't call anybody social workers, didn't tell any of the kids. And basically just told him the day of, like, hey, sorry, you guys got to go. So I called this girl I was seeing at the time. I'd only seen her for two weeks. I said, hey, you know, I got to leave. Can't really explain it, but I'd love to see you before I go. She had just gotten out of her SAT, right? 
And, uh, you know, sure enough, her mom calls back five minutes later and says, hey, you can you can come stay with us. Uh, so I went AWOL. I was missing from the state of California for about a year and a half before I told them where I was. But I stayed in communication with my workers. I told them, hey, I'm safe. You know, I met with them when they wanted to meet. Uh, you know, they would come out once a month. Legally, they had to. And uh, yeah, it was good. But So uh, how did you swing that with the mom? Because like, I mean, <laughs> you must have just... Yeah wooed her like crazy i mean she didn't even know you hardly right you know i met her once uh i no, i'd only met her twice once was like just saying hi while i was picking up her daughter and then the second time was like easter dinner at grandma's uh thank god easter dinner happened you know before the this lady sold the group home because uh you know i would have been back in sack right so you ended up living with that young lady and and her family and then you got and then you got your own place I did. Uh, six months later, I got an internship with the National Park Service with a nonprofit partner called the National Parks Conservancy. And they work with all 27 parks in, in San Francisco, which, you know, Golden Gate Bridge, Marin, Half Moon Bay, all of those, Pacifica, uh, for restoration, cleaning up trails, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So, and they gave me an apartment uh, for a cinematography position. Hello. I mean, like, like <laughs> yeah. you really make things happen for yourself. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It was good. Yeah, it was awesome. My job was to take my bike and drive down Alcatraz, take the ferry and take photos of tourists. So I really couldn't complain. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, you're just an astounding guy. And the fact that you just go, 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 no matter what gets in your way, right? Something like that. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of times that there was a lot of doubt, but, you know, definitely my relationship with God and, you know, having faith has, has gotten me through. Jeremiah was a prophet, you know. So I think I Jeremiah got some good... Jeremiah was a prophet, yeah, yeah. Got some good mojo with that name, hopefully. So, okay, so you have you said to me, the foster care business is filled with snakes and pedophiles. Tell me about Very that. Very true. Absolutely. So, you know, pedophilia has been a problem since the dawn of man. Uh, you know, all of the famous Greek poets, you know, all had boy lovers, right? There were, I mean, today's society would call that pedophiles. Uh, many, uh, lots of allegations of this in the Catholic religion, in the Jewish religion. Um, you know, it's on all sides and all cultures, uh, you know, and it's really unfortunate. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about the psychology of one of these types of persons, one of these predators, because you have to look at these things unemotionally. You could be like, oh, my God, they rape kids like, oh, and the horror. Right. But you have to really, really think about it. Right. Same with all issues. Really think about it. Why are these people the way they are? Well, nine times out of ten, it happened to them as a kid, which is very unfortunate. And I'm sure that happens to a lot of actually that's very common, actually, that some kind of funny business happens to someone that, Never happened to me, thank God. But uh, thank goodness. I met, dude, I met some kids in foster care. I met this one girl, right? Actually, I was dating her. And her own mother, her biological mother, I mean, the craziest thing I've ever heard, would take her to Disneyland and pimp her own blood daughter out to, to people, right? Now, I don't know how that was organized or all the details, but this is part of the reason why she got into care. And I mean, just I couldn't even imagine these things prior to entering foster care. So when you think about the psychology of a pedophile, you know, you think to Chris Hansen or there's a lot of YouTubers now who are exposing predators. Shout out to uh, People vs. Preds, San Diego. Really great. Uh, But 
why are they the way they are, right? Well, maybe something happened to them. Now, where are they going to find their victims? If I'm a pedophile, how am I going to go out and find some kid, right? Well, I'm either going to work around kids, right? I'm going to be online where kids are, or I'm going to have a fake identity and, you know, be online where kids, you know, there's multiple ways, right? And so, okay, great. Working around kids. Where does that happen? Schools, churches, theme parks, right? Countless Disney employees getting busted for, you know, photos or trafficking. Countless, you know, I mean, you're having every other week, there's a new blue haired liberal preschool teacher who is getting exposed for like literally having a, a, a communism flag or a LGBT trans flag and going like just having these sexual lessons with these kids who are like in first grade. There's drag queens story time at the libraries all across. This is a nationally funded program working with libraries across the nation, uh, you know, kids going on trans people's. And look, I've had a trans boss. If you want to be trans, great, but don't go out there and try and groom kids. And there are groups of gay people. I saw some organization on Twitter, I forgot what it was called, that are, it was like gays against grooming or something like that, right? They're like, hey, we realize this is a problem. Uh, but to get back to foster care specifically, foster care is a perfect environment to prey on children. They're weak, they're removed from their family, they don't know what the hell is going on, and they probably don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, and so, you know, I never had any foster parents who tried anything uh, on me personally. I, I, I've had gay people in the foster community try and, you know, make something happen. Uh, you know, there's many, many of the nonprofits uh, that work around foster care are led and ran by people in this community. Here's a great story. Not a great story. Very unfortunate one up in Oregon. You may remember this lesbian couple adopts four or five kids, right? Brown kids doesn't put them in school, homeschools them, quote unquote, right? Has them working all day, making kombucha, which if you never make kombucha homemade, it stinks, okay? <laughs> had them work this little mini farm they had on the house. I wish I remember the name of the couple, but I can't. This is a very famous story. Uh, you know, one day at the fair, they, they took their kids and one of the boys ran up to a police officer and said, help me, help me. They were like torturing us basically. And one of the, the man lesbian, the, the, you know, mask or whatever it's called, came up to the cop and basically sold him and down talked him. And, oh, that's, you know, he's in foster care. He's confused. We're, we got a great home. Everything's fine. Well, a month later, this lesbian couple felt, for whatever reason, they drove off a bridge with the four kids. They drove off a bridge with the four kids and just killed everybody. You probably know the story better than me, right? Well, I, I know it a little bit, and also because it's been actually, it, that storyline was used in the TV show Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, and one of the kids survives yeah. and ends up going home. Um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if the real story, if any of them survived. I, None of them did in the yeah, real story. Yeah. And that, that episode is actually how I found out about the whole thing. I highly recommend everybody watch that Atlanta season three episode. It's like the second episode of season three. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it actually, it's the first episode, and it's oh, yeah, and it, okay. it's like, and you, when you when you go into it, you wonder what show are you in, and then yeah. at the very end, it turns out he's having a dream. He wakes up, the uh, the main character. Yeah. Um, and uh, this show was made by Childish Gambino, Donald Glover, that's right. musical artist, very talented guy, and his parents were actually uh, had foster kids. That's right. They were foster parents. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
All right, I want to ask you about, um, you believe that there should be more preventative care to keep families intact. So talk to me about this, because you're like a wealth of knowledge sure. about, I mean, you know, your own personal history as well as the fact that you've worked with nonprofits and you are obviously, um, you like to keep yourself informed about what's happening in care. So, sure. so yeah, so tell me about that. Yeah, so, sorry, what, yeah. what's your question yeah, so, specifically? Yeah, so the question is, you believe there should be more preventative care. How, how, yes, how, thank yeah, you. How do you envision that? So let's zoom out of foster care as an issue. Of all the social issues we deal with and we argue with every election cycle, let's zoom out just to society as a whole. And, you know, when you think about the family unit, right, a husband, a wife, and kids, gay couple and kids, you know, there's certain traditional things that need to be done to keep the family together, right? There's, you know, if you don't have a family, I mean, you don't have a foundation. A family builds a business, a business builds a town, a town builds a state, and so on, right? I mean, if the family unit is the core example of society, right? It's the base level family unit is, is what, you know, it's just a key thing, right? And so when you go back to the 60s and you think about the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights you know, era, what this did was it incentivized black mothers to get pregnant, get the father out of the house, and then have the government become their, you know, their husband, essentially. This is, there are countless black you know, gurus and YouTubers of all different faiths and, and backgrounds who, who will tell you the same thing. I recommend you check out Jesse Lee Peterson if you ever heard of him. He talks about this vividly. He grew up on a plantation and saw this personal transformation, this destruction of the black family by design. Blacks didn't complain back before the Civil Rights Act. Blacks were very successful. We've had multiple very, very successful black people. There's multiple successful black billionaires. There's a black on the Supreme Court. I mean, the idea that black people are systematically held down by whites is a complete fabrication lie that was made to control minds. And people need to accept this. And I'm quarter black, so I could say it, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, this the Civil Rights Act was the first successful experiment of successfully breaking apart families and for a financial incentive from the government. Now, fast forward to foster care. How do you how does that work in the same situation? To the foster parents listening to this, how much money are you getting paid per kid per month? And I'm sure some of you, I'm sure, are saying, no, I'm not like that, and that's great, and I hope you aren't. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not in it for the money, right? You want to be a better parent. You want to be a better person. So that's not you. But there are a lot of foster parents who are what I call uh, glorified babysitters, right? Just throw a kid in a room for a check. And so how do we, you know, look at covid well, you know, we got these vaccines that are killing everybody, the clot shots that's killing everybody after their, you know, fourth dose like sheep. You know, this whole thing was a giant biblical proportion social experiment. And what did it do? It divided us. It conquered us. It made us all sheltered. It made, it's developmentally delaying children. I mean, people are suffering all across the board and it's all by design. So the idea that certain people in a room want to make something, make a societal change through legislation, through tax, is not a conspiracy. It's publicly documented, and it's happening now. So, what when you when you think about prevention versus you know uh, you know getting a cure? How can we have prevented COVID? How can we stop this from happening? How can we have held our governments more in account to where they're able to say you're not essential? Every the crackhead on the street is essential. How do we prevent foster care? Right? How do we get preventative care instead of just 
you know, all this expensive giant medical business of, you know, just destroying lives for trillions and trillions of dollars in the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's we start getting back to the basics. You are seeing a shift now in the culture where, where you know, feminism is starting to be looked down upon with the dissolution of Roe v. Wade. Uh, you know, you're seeing a big cultural shift with the war that's happening, with, uh, you know, families suffering. They're starting to see the value and importance of having a normal family, having a dad, having a mom, sitting down for dinner together, praying together. And I think as a culture, we have to start seeing it's not good to be some freak, quote unquote, modern family. These shows are put out to you on purpose to try and paint this image that it's cool and valuable to be all screwed up. And it's really just not. You know, we want to stop people from ever getting into foster care. How do we stop the state from raping these families? How do we get to Sacramento? How do we, at a federal level, put in incentivizations or take away things that break families apart? If you're a social worker and you're listening to this, do you have a quota? I mean, have you ever heard of social workers having a quota? I mean, surely they have to have some kind of metric to track their progress and their position. Right. How, what kind of kickbacks are these group homes getting? What kind of kickbacks are these foster homes getting? So, uh, you know, if you're a family out there and, you know, CPS is knocking on your door and they're trying to get your kids, you need to take this very seriously and very calmly understand what steps to take to keep your family together. Because once, you know, they enter that system, you're in the system, right? You're in the bureaucracy of the government, which if you look across history, the government typically isn't there to serve the people. Right. Well, it goes back to what you're saying that in your family, uh, the flags were up really early on and then the yeah. continued phone calls. Unfortunately, my dad didn't put his foot down. I, you know, I've had conversations with him. I told him, look, I forgive you, but you were weak. You know what I mean? My dad had a, had an opportunity to not let her back in and say, look, that, you know, this isn't okay. You need to go get help. You need to go get a job. You need to get, go, go get your own place. But, you know, for whatever it was, the memories he's told me, the kids, obviously, and the idea of a family, he wanted to try and make it work. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we all know what happened. Right. So, so what, you know, what happened to your mom? Do you have a relationship with her now? So she is missing and homeless. Mm. The last time I saw her was actually a, a B-roll shot of her and a story about homelessness in downtown Sacramento. She had both of her braids done, and it was a shot of her eating. She had mittens on, and there was just this, like, togetherness about her, but this lostness, too. And I remember my dad, this was 2019, my dad sent me the, the clip one day, and it was just so surreal. The last time I saw her in person was probably 20... 13-ish at uh, when one of my baby nephews was born. And uh, yeah, you know, part of me wants to hire some private investigators to search through all the homeless in, you know, downtown Sac. But uh, part of me also feels a sense of calm that, you know, wherever she is, she's okay. So it's not like this uh, overarching thing that's kind of always on my head. I've really kind of come to a, a sense of calm with it. So Right. So can you tell me about who, uh, about your life now? Like, yeah. Yeah. What are you doing? So now I'm working for Amazon. I'm a technical recruiter, which means I hire software engineers. Uh, I'm living in LA. I'm getting ready to move back to San Diego. Uh, and, you know, I'm just looking to build wealth and, you know, hopefully have a family here real soon. Right. Walk the talk, hopefully. Yeah. And you've had a bunch of careers already because you are, are an entrepreneur. Yes. And then now you're 
working for Amazon, you're a technical recruiter. You're somehow qualified to do that. That's amazing, right? <laughs> I mean... Well, yeah. I mean, I, I actually... I got into the top of the sales world and, you know, everybody has a different definition of what the top is. But for me, I got to work for the actual Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, uh, infamous stockbroker in the 80s who got famous for a pump and dump. And, you know, Leo played him, Martin Scorsese. And, you know, one day he said, hey, I'm looking for, you know, some salesmen, send in your resume. And I was picked out of 600 and, you know, got the job on a Thursday and had to be in LA on a Monday. So wow. it was really awesome. And, you know, it was just high level sales, him playing my calls every day. We were, we were actually working out of his home. Um, and so it was a very unique learning opportunity, which let's face it, he's scam people, but uh, is an amazing teacher of, of communication. So definitely been, you know, mainly sales has been most of my career, but I kind of got sick of the, you know, kind of grind of it and, and wanted to stop selling people things they don't really need. So uh, I found recruiting to incorporate a lot of those skills, but be a, a force for good. Okay, I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests, and that is, yes. what is the one thing that no one would ever guess about you unless you told them? That's a good question. One thing someone would never know unless I told them. That I'm addicted to Capri Suns. I absolutely love Capri Suns. And <laughs> if I get a box of them in my house, I'll drink it in like two hours tops. Yeah, that kind of goes back to your childhood with like the uh, fruity things, right? Sneak it. <laughs> it's all full circle. It's all related for sure. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I was like, you know, when I get my first place, I'm going to get a giant bowl and just fill it with fruit snacks. I'm just I'm just going to have it like out all day. Right. And it's like now that would make me want to throw up. So <laughs> some places I've grown others. It's still the same. Listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate your frankness and your forthrightness, even when you think maybe what you're saying is not popular. Uh, but you're you're obviously thinking a lot about who you are and how you want to live and also what you want to say. So good on you. Yeah, I hope, you know, your audience continues to grow. And I think, you know, to the foster parents that are in foster care, my hat's off to you. But just really think about why you're doing it and, you know, what you want out of it. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremiah, for sharing your story with us and taking the initiative to take care of yourself when you saw that there were no better options. In addition, although there might be some controversy with some of the things you might have said in this episode, it's very important to us that you get to express yourself freely, without judgment, because after all, this is a free country, and we can say what's on our mind, whether or not someone else might disagree with it, and ultimately it doesn't need to end in violence, or a smear campaign, or a cultural delete. Thank you for your candor and your honesty. Our next guest is Dr. Miriam Savage, Dr. Savage is an associate professor at CIIS in San Francisco, the California Institute of Integral Studies. She's worked as an expressive arts therapist in two acute psychiatric institutions, has a private practice teaching expressive arts therapies, and she specializes in working with youth. And she's also my wife. So join us next week for Dr. Miriam Savage. Thank you and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, 
Contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.